1: Yeah, I think um, during worship I was just reminded when uh, when Taylor was saying everything is yes and amen that you know as we're in the month of Kislev, the month of dreams and visions, to um, I think it's just a reminder of the Lord to say remember to dream, um, not just at night, to just those daydreams that you have, um, and to remember to allow yourself to be challenged to go above and beyond what you think, uh, and just that, the fact that we talk about it all the time, I mean, personally. Um, sometimes that false humility gets in the way and uh, it uh, does not allow us to walk in the fullness of everything God has for us um, because, but God's got so much more than what we really want. And just to, just a reminder, dream again, Um, allow, allow God to challenge you with what he says you can do um, and to believe it. And that's the thing, believe it and to, and to see him work in that. So, I mean, his desire is to, have his kingdom come using us. He wants to use us to establish his kingdom here on earth. Um, and so we're going to have to believe for some pretty big things um, if that's the case. Uh, and so just allow yourself to be loved by God and used by God. And uh, remember to dream, dream with him.
0: Amen.
2: Yeah, this was not planned to go husband and wife. <laughs> but um, the song we sang Awake My Soul um, it's been in my heart for the last month or so, and so I, I felt stirring to share it. If you've studied the book of Revelation, Jesus writes um, letters to different churches, and the the church of Laodicea is judged the harshest because they are lukewarm. And commentators often attribute or, like, say that Laodicea is synonymous to the USA. Like, we're lukewarm. We just go about our day, and it's like, uh ah. Everything's good. You know, no suffering, no great things. We're just lukewarm. And that is the worst thing to be. And so the awaken my soul just really got to me. And it's something that I've been thinking about is just, if you find yourself just being lukewarm, not caring, not, um, I don't, I don't even know what the opposite of lukewarm is or how to articulate that. I think that's between you and the Lord, but I just, now is
3: the time to awaken your soul. Uh, I was going to say after uh, you' talking about being lukewarm and everything, um, this came during service, during the praise and worship, But you who stuck with I do not your God are still alive today, every one of you. Look, I have taught you laws and rulings just as I don't know my God ordered me so that you can behave accordingly in the land we' are going in order to take possession of it. Therefore observe them and follow them, for then all the peoples will see you as having wisdom and understanding. When they hear of all these laws, they will say, "This great nation is surely a wise and understanding people." For what great nation is there that has a God so close to them and near as them as our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? So now it's not the time to be lukewarm anymore. We have to completely uh, surrender ourselves and be obedient, because through that others are going to see the wisdom and understanding of God, and many people are going to come into the kingdom of heaven.
0: Amen. Anyone else? Okay, so this week we are in Ports and Vaiete, and it's about when Jacob goes out and leaves, heading up to Laban's house to find a bride. And the story begins with Jacob on the road with nothing, but it ends with Jacob on the road with a full home, with wealth, children, wives, coming back to the place of his destiny. So there's a large reversal that takes place in this portion. And of course there's a lot that happens in between there. We'll, we'll cover some of it, but not all of it today. And but this this week's portion opens up with a dream. Opens up with an encounter that Jacob has with the Lord So let's read in Genesis 28, starting in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. So here, just kind of in recounting what we just read, the scripture says he came to the place. He encountered the place. And it refers to it as specifically, not just a place. He came to a place, but he came to the place. And the scripture says that three times. The place that he encountered, there is, he called it Bethel, the house of God. And it's known as the place where, is known is known as Mount Moriah, right? The place where Adam and Eve were created, where Abraham met Melchizedek, where Isaac had been offered up, and where that one day where the temple would stand, and that was the place wherein which he saw this ladder, and he saw God standing at the top of it. Now in the scripture it says, God was standing either over it, over the ladder, or over Jacob. It could be interpreted either way because the Hebrew is not descript as to which that would be. So either God was hovering over him or he was hovering atop the ladder. But either way, God was encountering Jacob in order to prepare him for the way on which he was going to go. He had received the birthright and the blessing from his father father, and now he had been sent to go find a wife. But things weren't going exactly the way that Jacob would have expected them to go. And so he needed an encounter with God at this point in time, this critical juncture, so that he would have the strength and the faith to move forward and to go and accomplish all that God had for him, trusting that God was going to be with him and bring about all that he had spoken. Now, with this this dream of the ladder, dreams can have multiple interpretations. Sometimes they have one interpretation. Sometimes uh, we're seeking an interpretation and trying to figure out, Lord, what are you saying within this dream? What, What are the symbols and what are you communicating? Well, generally, this vision of the ladder is understood to be a connection between heaven and earth, where God is making a bridge between the two. He's making an avenue For him to encounter man and for man to encounter him. So, in one way, well, there's, there's, as I said, there's multiple interpretations of this. There's the idea of the ladder being a representation of Mount Sinai with God standing. Well, okay, so God standing at the top, right? Then you have the ladder and you have the angels ascending and descending. So, if we're likening this to Mount Sinai, you have Mount Sinai being the latter, you have God on top of the mountain, and you have Moses and Aaron who are ascending and descending upon Mount Sinai in order to bring the word to the people and to represent the people to God. So that's that's one element of it. There's also the aspect of, um, well, I'm not going to go into great detail in these. There's a an idea of the, it representing. The ascending and descending of the angels representing various kingdoms on the earth, such as the king of, of the kingdom of Babylon, Medea, Greece, and Rome. There's also different aspects about Jacob's uniqueness. But Yeshua, our Messiah, he also gives us another understanding of what the latter is. Because he speaks in John one fifty one. And he says to those who were following, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Notice it says, on the Son of Man. So he is likening himself to be the ladder from Jacob's dream, being the one who connects heaven to, to earth and earth to heaven, the vehicle by which God can reveal himself to man and how man can reach God which is a wonderful picture, right? Still along the very theme of God looking to encounter His people. Now, one of the things that the Scripture says about this ladder is that it was set upon the earth. Genesis 28, 12 says, the ladder was set upon the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. Angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, when the Scripture says that the top of it reached heaven, to the heaven. That phrase is very similar to a phrase that we encountered several chapters ago, actually several portions ago, when we read in Genesis 11, when the people of Babel came together and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they wanted to build this structure, this top would reach into the heavens. And from this place, they would make a name for themselves that would reach to all the ends of the earth. Now contrast that with what we see here. God shows Jacob a dream with a ladder whose top reaches to the heavens connecting heaven and earth and God standing at the top of it and giving Jacob a calling and saying all the nations of the earth will bless themselves by you. And you're going to be successful because I'm going with you and I won't leave you or forsake you until all these things have been accomplished. God is taking the promise that he'd given to Abraham and passed down to Isaac and now he's passing it here to Jacob as well. And just as with Abraham... God had spoken of how he had chosen Abraham because Abraham was one who would command his children after him to love the Lord and to follow in all of his footsteps, to uphold all of his Torah. And God said that he was taking Abraham out and bringing him to a place, and he would make Abraham's name great. He was going to make Abraham's name great for the very purpose of making God's name great because he knew Abraham would be one who would do it. Now he passes it down through Isaac and to Jacob, and God's standing atop this ladder, and saying, man has tried to build a structure for their own, by their own devices to make a name for themselves. But I confounded that, and I disrupted it, because it is God's name that will be great in all the earth. Now who is it who will come and step into the place that God has established for them, walk in his ways and make God's name great in all the earth. And he says, Jacob, I've appointed you and your offspring to be the ones who will go forth and make my name great in all the earth. And God surely will bring it about. Now, if God gives this revelation to Jacob, that Jacob and his descendants are to be a connecting point with God to connect heaven and earth. And then we see Yeshua saying that He is the very one that is the connecting point, a descendant of Jacob. We see God's plans and purposes being brought out in the people of God making His name great and in His Son, the chosen Messiah, making His name great. And the question that is asked is, where will you be in his story? Because the story of making God's name great isn't just for one person to do. It is for the many coming together in faith and faithfulness unto him to go and to make his name great in all the earth. Now when, when Jacob is setting out, he sees this vision and he's watching the ladder, and he's seeing the angels ascend and descend, but he's only a spectator. By the end of the portion, we see a parallel passage, and we see Jacob standing in a different position. And this is in Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 through 2 or it's verses 2 through 3 if you're reading in a, in a Hebrew Bible. The Scripture says, this, this is at the very end, right? Jacob has already gone to Laban's house. He's already uh, acquired his wives, had children, amassed great wealth, and now he's returning to the land of Israel. And the Scripture says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Machanaim. Okay, two camps. And what's happening here, there's various parallels between the beginning of the portion and the end of the portion. I'm not going to go into all of those parallels. But when we started out, he saw angels. He encountered the place, and he saw angels ascending and descending. And now here at the end, the angels come and encounter him. He's no longer an observer. He's one who's right in the middle of things. He's engaged. He's a participant in what's going on with these angels who are ministers of the Lord. And so even though he didn't begin, he began as an onlooker, he didn't end as an onlooker. Even so, right now, with where we are in our life, if we're finding ourselves lukewarm, as Laura was talking about. We may be one who's sitting and looking on as a spectator. But God says, no, I don't desire for you just to be a spectator. You're to come and you're to be a participant. You're to encounter the angels. You're to encounter what I have for you. You're to walk with me and make my name great in all the earth. Now, when I started out talking about Jacob being on this path and things not going as he expected. We might say, well, what What are you talking about? Why do you say things aren't going as he expected? Here he's received the blessing. His father blessed him right before he left again. So even though he had received a blessing under deceptive circumstances, when he had brought food before his father, His Father had again come and blessed him before he sent him out. So he knew the blessing was affirmed. It was established. Yet even so, he comes to this place and he has questions and doubts about what's my future? Where am I going? And the scripture doesn't come out and say this explicitly. Instead, it drops hints. Hints making us say, why did the scripture say it that way? Or What's going on in this conversation? So when we're reading the scripture, we need to be asking those questions. Even there was a good example last week, a question was asked about how the scripture said that Sarah went to inquire of the Lord. It's like, well, we could just read through that and drive on and say, yeah, she went to inquire of the Lord. But where did she go to inquire of the Lord? Did she go into her prayer closet? Did she go down to the creek, you know, or where? Where did she go to inquire? And we spoke about how she went to Shem and to Eber and asked them for a word from the Lord and received a word. Well, here as we're going through the Scriptures, we can begin to ask questions of what's taking place. For example, in the Scriptures that we read just a little bit ago, after Jacob has his encounter, he says, If God will be with me, will guard me on this way that I go, Will give me bread to eat and clothes to wear, and I return in peace to my father's house, and the Lord will be a God to me. Then the stone which I have set up will be a pillar, which I have set up as a pillar, shall become a house of God. And whatever you give me, I shall repeatedly tithe it to you. Well, what stands out here is, he's saying, if God will give me bread to eat and clothes to wear, that's kind of an interesting statement. In one way, we could say, oh yeah, he's just talking about general provision. But on the other hand, that's a strange thing to say for someone who's rich, someone who is a descendant of Isaac, someone who is on his way to go and acquire a bride from his uncle who is uh, somewhat greedy, as we've seen in the prior portions. So he's saying, okay, well, God, I need your provision. I need you to even give me clothes to wear. He should have had plenty of clothes. So that's one thing. Now, in and of itself, I'm just pointing something out that may or may not mean something. But when we begin to string it together with other things that are going on, we begin to ask, what has happened to Jacob? And, well, in fact, even in next week's, I think it's next week's portion, I haven't read ahead Uh there's one point where he is praying to God and he's saying, oh yeah, okay, here we go. Now I've read ahead. Genesis 32, Jacob is praying as he's getting ready to meet Esau and he says, I, am, I have been diminished by all the kindness and by all the truth that you have done to your servant. For with my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. So he says that all he had when he crossed the Jordan was his staff. Okay, so we have interesting things going on. And now let's read a, part, a portion that will take us a little farther in this. Jacob has his encounter with God. He says, um, okay, if God will be with me. I'm going to trust in the Lord. And he said, Jacob lifted his feet and went toward the land of the Easterners. So I really like that phrase, that he lifted his feet and went to the land of the Easterners. It isn't just he walked or he went, he lifted his feet. There's something different. There's a spring in his step is the way I envision that. He wasn't shuffling. But anyway, so he goes with hope and expectation because he's now had an encounter with God. Now he comes to the land where Laban dwells. And in Genesis 29:9 is where we'll pick up. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob his sister's son he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house Jacob told Laban all these things and Laban said Surely you are bone of my bone or you are my bone and my flesh and he stayed with him a month okay so we've run into another issue where are the translation that we're reading here on the screen doesn't do justice to what's really in the Hebrew? Um, so I'm, I am going to read a little bit differently. This and it mainly it's this last verse that is missing something, where he says, "Surely you are my bone and my flesh." That all, that sounds too positive because it does, it's it's not the, it doesn't have the negative connotations that we find in the Hebrew. So Laban said to him... So he tells the story, right? He tells the story of what's taking place. He recounted to Laban all these events, and then Laban said to him, Nevertheless, you are my flesh and blood. And he stayed with him a month's time. That's a big difference. Nevertheless, you're my flesh and my blood, as opposed to surely you're my bone and my flesh. Okay. The reason why is that nevertheless is Laban is greatly disappointed. He is really not happy with what he's been told. Now, if we were to you know, put this story in parallel with the story of Eliezer coming and finding Rebecca, you would see some similarities, but you'd see some stark contrasts as well. And I actually didn't pull this up in here, but what happens is Eliezer goes to find Rebekah, because Abraham sent him and said, go find a bride for Isaac, and so he loads Eliezer up with all kinds of riches, and Eliezer comes to the well, and he finds Rebecca, and he takes golden bracelets and puts it on her, and a golden nose ring, and, and he starts adorning her with riches, and she goes in and tells her father and Laban all that's happening, and Laban runs out there, and he's like, man, come you who are blessed of the Lord, and... I do think this is in, uh, yeah, okay, Genesis 24, 31. He says, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So he's excited about Eliezer. Eliezer comes in, tells the story of Abraham's great wealth and about how everything is, is happening. And then we see here in, in Genesis 24, verse 50 and 51, then Laban and Bethuel answered him and said, well, the thing has come from the Lord, that Rebekah is to be the bride. So we can't speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. They are thrilled at what they've seen and heard. And now when Jacob's coming and Rachel goes in and says, hey, the next generation has come, Laban runs out to meet him. And he kissed him and took him to his house. And then Jacob says what happens and Laban's like, well, nevertheless, you're my flesh and blood, right? Because Jacob is coming with nothing but his staff. He's coming with nothing but his staff. And for us to understand what's happening, why it is that Jacob only comes with his staff, we need to look to... Tradition, And we need to look to what is written in the Talmud about what took place on Jacob's journey along the way. And according to tradition, what had taken place is that Esau had dispatched his oldest son, Eliphaz, to go and to kill Jacob. Because in Esau's heart was a desire to kill his brother. So he sent his oldest son to go and do it. And on his way, on the way, Jacob was overtaken by Eliphaz. But what the story says is that Eliphaz did not want to kill Jacob, for he too had been raised in Isaac's home and did not desire to murder anyone. So he had a dilemma. My father has told me to kill you, Jacob, but in my heart, I don't want to do it. So Jacob gave him a way out and he said, don't kill me, but instead take everything that I have and leave me with nothing because a poor man is as good as a dead man and you can go back and you can tell your father that I am dead. And so Eliphaz took his counsel, took everything that Jacob had and went back to his father and reported, Jacob is dead. And so now, Jacob goes forward with nothing along the road, and it, this is why it's not going as he had planned. He know he did not have the means to go and get a wife. He did not have the means to do anything, truthfully. All he had was his staff, and now he was going to rely on the Lord. And it says that when he saw Rachel, I know the, the verse that we said, it said that he, he wept aloud. The Hebrew says that he let out a great cry, a great and bitter cry. And that great and bitter cry is a parallel of what Esau did when he came and found that the blessing had been given to his brother. He let out a great and bitter cry. And so through the scriptures, God's making a connection between the cry of Jacob when he met Rachel and the cry of Esau. When he knew he wasn't going to receive the blessing. There's various reasons for that. Some say, some uh, interpretations say it's because Jacob prophetically saw that he would not be able to be with Rachel, that she would, uh, that their time together would be cut short. On the other hand, if we look at it on the plain and simple aspect of the verses, he was letting out a great and bitter cry because he did not have the means to actually have her as a wife. Right. So now he's coming to Laban and he is completely at Laban's mercy. And Laban's mercy does not run that deep. (laughs) So he's he's uh, he's in a tough spot. But what he has is an encounter with the Lord and a word that he will go forward and that God will accomplish his promises to him. So now as we continue on with the story, Genesis 29 Verse 21, what's happened here, I've I've skipped forward a little bit because Laban did ask him, you know, what should your wages be? And Jacob offered to work for seven years in order to acquire Rachel as his wife. Again, he doesn't have the means, so he's going to have to work for seven years in order to get his bride. And so he asked for Rachel, your younger daughter. So he's very explicit in what his request is. So, so Laban agrees that he would give her, and Jacob worked seven years, and now we find here in verse 21, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast, feast. but in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. And we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Okay, so... Jacob had specifically asked for Rachel to be his his wife and said that he would work for seven years in order to acquire her. Laban agreed, but then Laban performed a switch and presented Leah to him. And Jacob did not know. And this is always one, too, where you say, how did he not know, right? And you can be like, well, you know, she was veiled, um, it was dark. There's all kinds of things you can come up with. Now, actually, the Seder Olam, which was a second century document, says that Leah and Rachel were twins, interestingly. Um, now, that's the only place I know of that it says that. Now, the scripture speaks of how Leah uh, had, a, had a weak eye, you know, and so there's various differences between between the two, but one of the things that tradition, tradition says about the story is that one of the ways in which Jacob thought that it was Rachel was that he and Rachel knew that Laban was a deceiver and they suspected that, that he was going to try to pull something over Jacob's eyes. And so Jacob and Rachel had come up with a few signs that Rachel would give to him on the wedding day so that he would know that it was her and not anyone else, which is yet another reason for us to think of perhaps the twin thing might have some some validity to it. But, and so even with that story, it's like, well, how? If they'd come up with signs because they expected deceit, then how is it that they got through to the point where Jacob was deceived? And according to tradition, Rachel gave Leah the signs so that when she was brought before Jacob, she would be able to give those signs and be married to him. And that's another fascinating thing, right? Because we have to be scratching our head a little bit of, well, if Rachel and Jacob expected the deception, but now Rachel is helping the deception come about, you know, this, things just aren't really computing. She gave the signs. So, so what the sages say is that, I know there's a lot of stories, right? It's a lot of stories, but sometimes the backstory can be really helpful for us to understand, uh, additional connections within the scripture. And when I share these stories, um, I share the, and I'm just, I'm sharing this aspect for clarity. I share them not because I see them as being the infallible word of God but because they can shed light on things within Scripture, within our understanding, with additional connections within the Scripture. So when we talk about these stories, they may or may not have been completely accurate. Sometimes they are told for the purpose of helping us make connections in Scripture that we otherwise would not see. But these are stories that were passed down from generation to generation such that even even to the point where Yeshua would have known many of these stories, as part of his upbringing and as part of his understanding of what the scriptures are. So that's why I'm sharing some of these some of these stories. But now back to my story. All right. So she gave the signs to Leah because Leah is being brought before Jacob in the sight of all the people. And here she is. She's the firstborn. She's being brought up and presented to him. All the people are gathered for the celebration. And if she isn't able to give the signs and is shown to be in front of everyone an imposter, then great shame is brought upon Leah. Great disgrace is brought upon her. And Rachel In her love for her sister and a desire to not see her go through that that dishonor is willing to give the signs and allow her sister to be brought into the family. And in doing that, Rachel was laying herself down for the good of others. It was truly a selfless act of love. And so I'm sharing that because we're going to now go through the story of what takes place with the birth of Jacob's children. So what we read in verse 31 was the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, so he opened her womb, but Rachel remained barren. Right. So God enabled Leah to have children, but he left Rachel Childless. So yet again, there's another level of suffering that Rachel is going through. Here, she was supposed to have Jacob as a husband, the the only bride. But then she lays herself down so that her sister isn't put to shame, inviting another woman in. And then she takes the second seat. She's sitting in the background while her sister is getting married, when she should be the one there. And then she now comes into a place of not having children. So she is, she's bearing up under much, su- under much suffering. Leah has four children, and then Rachel sees I'm not having any children, so here Jacob, take my maidservant and raise up children for me. So her maidservant has two children. Leah gives her maidservant as well, well because now there's a great competition going on. And two more children are born. Then Leah again has two more boys. So now she's up to six. And, and Jacob is up to ten boys now. And that's where we pick up with continuing in the story here in Genesis 30, verse 22. The Scripture says, "God." Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. So where we stand at this point is we're now, Jacob has been with Laban for a total of 14 years. Seven years he served and he was given his wives. Um, and then seven more years he's serving Laban to complete the 14 years. In seven years, he's had 11 sons. Not even the Sharon's can keep up. And uh, Sorry, Richard, I just had to. Um, by the way, that's not a challenge, okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, so he's had 11 sons, and uh, wow. But at, at this point, this is, actually, I'm not, I'm not going to go there yet. Okay, we're going to stay back here with, Then God remembered Rachel, and he listened to her and opened her womb. So God remembered Rachel. Why did God remember Rachel? And this is where the sages say, God remembered Rachel because of what she had done with her sister and giving her the signs and allowed herself to take on disgrace such that her sister would not undergo disgrace. So Rachel bore the embarrassment and the shame. And now... Now, because of what she's done, God has remembered her and moved to act on her behalf. He's heard her voice and he has opened her womb. Now, a couple weeks ago, I don't know if it was a couple weeks ago, we talked about Sarah and how the scripture says God remembered Sarah and he gave her a child. He gave, she, God gave her Isaac. Now, when we spoke about that, spoke about that before, We spoke on how when the scripture is saying that God remembered, hes it's not that he's forgotten. He's now getting ready to move on behalf of someone. And so when I read this about God remembering Rachel, I thought, oh, well, you know what? I want to go and look up all the times that the scripture says God remembered. And I thought there were a lot more than there are. And even the one about Sarah, it's not the same verb that was used. So, Here when it's saying, God remembered Rachel, it's vayiskor Elohim, God remembered, from the word zahor. That phrase of God remembering happens four times in the Torah, within the first five books. The first one is in Genesis 8.1, and it says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. So God remembered Noah after the flood. The next one, in Genesis 1929, says, "So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when He overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived." So this one, God's remembering Abraham. And he brings Lot out of destruction when destruction is coming on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we have Genesis 30, which we've just read. Of God, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And then the fourth time is in Exodus two twenty four. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So this is when God's getting ready to deliver his children out of Egypt. So four times... Each time you've got God remembering righteous Noah, righteous Abraham, righteous Rachel, and um, he's remembering the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's remembering that the, uh, the righteousness of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now in the flood, this is after the flood, there's already been a destruction, and, and God is moving to act where he has saved people. With Abraham... We're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. He's moving to act to save someone out of destruction. In Exodus 2.24, you have God remembering in order to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. So there's a deliverance that's taking place in all three of those that we just read. But in Genesis 30.22, we have again the God remembering, a righteous one, and moving to act. But where's the deliverance, right? That's something that's different in this this story. But maybe it just appears to be different. And I say that because what happens when God moves on Rachel's behalf? He opens her womb and she brings forth a child. And this child, she names Joseph. And she says... God has taken away my disgrace. So she called his name Joseph, saying, may God add for me another son. Okay. So he took away her disgrace and she called his name Joseph. Okay. Those two words are actually related. Taking away is Asaf and then Joseph is Yosef. Okay. The only difference being the first two letters. Okay, but taking away is Asaf, and the adding another is Yosef. Okay, so the thing is, so God has removed disgrace and bring forth Joseph. He's removed it, and then what beyond that? So there is some level of deliverance where she's taken away from disgrace but there's a whole other element that's taking, that, that's occurring here, and it's in who Joseph is. Joseph was going to be raised up as a deliverer of his people, a deliverer of his brothers. And we're going to be reading this in the coming weeks. He's one who went before the children of Israel into the land of Egypt in order to rise to a place of prominence where he could provide for and sustain his brothers such that they would not fall in the coming destruction of the famine, right? So a deliverer was coming forth. Now, interestingly enough, when we read the scriptures, there's something that Jacob knew too about the birth of Joseph. Because as soon as Here was in uh, Genesis 30, 25. And it was, when Rachel had given birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Grant me leave that I may go to my place and to my land. It's connected. Jacob, seeing that it was time to go back to his land, was connected to the birth of Joseph. And the sages say that it was because he prophetically saw that that the one who would counter, the adversary of Esau, had been born. The one who would stand against the house of Esau, which would seek to destroy the house of Jacob. And in Obadiah, verse 18, Obadiah is only one chapter, so it's Obadiah 1, verse 18. Don't go looking for any other chapter. But in verse 18, the scripture says, The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. And so the sages make the connection with this verse from Obadiah with what is taking place with the birth of Joseph. And Jacob knowing that the firstborn, his firstborn had now come to him through Rachel and one through whom deliverance would come. So he's ready now to go forward and to go back home. Now, what's striking to me is that Joseph was going to go forward as a deliverer, and he came forth through a woman who was willing to submit herself to shame for the benefit of others, and he himself would be one who would suffer many things, but through his life, many would come to live through the trouble that was to come. And so when we, when we take that narrative and that story, which I know we're going to talk more about in the coming weeks as we go through the life of Joseph, we can't help but see the picture of Mary, Yeshua's mother, bringing forth Yeshua. Now, now, Before, before I go to, uh, further in that story, I'll take a brief pause. So according to the understanding of the sages, and it's been passed down through the years, there was an expectation that there would be two messiahs for the nation of Israel. There would be a messiah son of Joseph and a messiah son of David. The messiah son of Joseph would be a suffering messiah who would suffer on behalf of the people. But then the Messiah, son of David, would be one who was a conquering and reigning Messiah, one who would bring forth the deliverance and bring the nation into uh, peace, that the Messiah, son of Joseph, would die in battle. The Messiah of David would come later, even some traditions say, and raise up the Messiah, son of Joseph, and the Messiah, son of David, would then rule. And the Messiah, son of Joseph, right? The su- he would be a suffering servant. And we, of course, see that with the life of Joseph. We see him as a suffering servant, one who brought deliverance. And at the time of Yeshua, when he came, the nation of Israel was looking for the Messiah, son of David, to come and to, to deliver them from the Roman rule. That was the main thing that they were looking for. They weren't looking for a Messiah, son of Joseph, who would come and, and die, but they were looking for a, a deliverer, right? But Yeshua came as a suffering servant, and he came as that suffering servant as the promised seed spoken of to Abraham. Now, In Matthew, we get the story of the angel Gabriel coming to Miriam, to Mary, and announcing that she would have a son. And in Matthew 1, let's read verse 18 through 21. Now the birth of Yeshua Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Okay, and and actually... And, and you know, uh, kind of putting two stories together, if we were to look at this in Luke chapter 1, verse 35 through 38, and the angel answered Mary and he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age and has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. All right, so the angel comes to her and tells her something that is beyond all natural reason that she is going to bear a child, and, and it will be the work of the Holy Spirit to bring forth this child. And she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, in one hand, we think, okay, here's the handmaiden of the Lord who's saying, okay, I'm going to do God's will. Sounds easy enough, right? An angel came and told you this. But consider that she's betrothed to Joseph. She is not married to Joseph fully yet, but she is at the stage where if she is found unfaithful, then she would be put to death. And upon hearing the word from the angel, she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That takes guts. That is a truly submitted spirit. One that says, you know what? People find out about this and I'll be put to open shame and disgrace. I may even be put to death, but may it be done to me according to God's will. And so then Joseph, Joseph, the scripture says he's a tzadi, he's a righteous man. He was unwilling to put her to shame. And he thought, how can I do this? How can I move on in such a way that will save her? And so he's seeking to find a way to preserve her life. And the Lord says, I have a better way. (laughs) And he appears to Joseph in a dream and he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take her as your wife, for this is from the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph also moves forward in courage and faith and takes her as his wife in order that the will of God may be done through them. And and consider this too when the angel addresses or when he's addressed by the angel in the dream he says Joseph son of David this shall be your son and so even in that moment he's saying your son is going to be the son of Joseph and the son of David That's pretty cool to think on right So even in the flesh you have there God made the way where he said look Yeshua is the son of Joseph and the son of David he is the Messiah who will be the suffering one and the one who will be the ruling one and he will be raised, <clears throat> the firstborn of the resurrection, amen. And uh, so, so here you have Yeshua, much like Joseph, born of a, of, a, of a woman who was willing to lay herself down to endure the shame and that he himself too would go and endure much shame in order that, that all could live. Right. And many would find life through him. It's a wonderful picture. But it's it's a wonderful picture in multiple aspects. It's because God had a plan and a purpose that could not be accomplished without his intervention, without his provision. And he was coming to people who were just men and women and saying, I have a plan and a purpose that is great a plan and a purpose to make my name great in all the earth and to bring salvation so that God can connect with me and I can connect with man. Will you come and be a part of it? My desire is not for you to sit on the sideline. My desire is for you to come and to be in it, to be a part of the great redemption, to be a part of this ladder that makes God's name great, that connects God to man, and man to God. And Yeshua says, come and follow me. Dwell in me, and I in you. And greater works will you do, because I go to the Father. And the Holy Spirit will be placed into you. You know, as I was thinking on this, um, there's a book that came to my mind, uh, last night, and it's this book called God's Generals. It's a really good book if you haven't read it. It's uh, it recounts the story of many men and women of the faith who moved in the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. And so, it tells the story of their lives. It tells the stories of their successes and their failures and talks about how mightily God moves in people. And that book just kept coming to my mind. And so and I felt like I was, needed to go read kind of just the foreword of it again. And in the foreword, there were a couple of things stated. One, a person said, the God of Elijah is your God. The God of Elijah is your God. It's the same God. The mighty things God did through Elijah he's looking to do through his people today. The mighty things God did through Yeshua, he's looking to do through his people today. The God of Jacob is your God. And think about this, when he's sending Jacob along the road, when all Jacob has is a staff, God says, I will be with you. I'm not going to leave you or forsake you until I have accomplished all that I have spoken over you. The same is true for you today and me where he says, I will be with you and I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. And then too, just as Jacob prayed, well, if God will be with me along the way, then I will serve you with all that you give me. And God gives to us in manifold ways, right? He gives us gifts and talents, gifts by the Holy Spirit. He gives us the ability to produce wealth multiple ways in which we then get to turn around and take the blessings that God has given us and pour them into His kingdom for the purpose of making His name great. Another thing that was said in the foreword of the book was that it takes more than a desire to fulfill the Word of God. It takes spiritual strength. It takes spiritual strength. Jacob demonstrated it. Mary demonstrated it. Joseph demonstrated it. Yeshua demonstrated it. All of these went before us to give an example of how we too can walk in spiritual strength and see God move in our midst. Again, all for the purpose of our connection with him and making his name great in all the earth. In Isaiah 4, the scripture says, This is speaking of the end times. It says, seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Take away our reproach. This is speaking of taking a hold of the Messiah and saying, let us be called by your name. You are the one who takes away our reproach. You're the one who bore the shame that we don't have to. You're the one who made the way. And now let us take a hold of you and be called by your name and may your name be great in us. It says, In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Praise God for His cleansing, for His great work to raise up a people who will be called by His name, who will walk in His ways, to know Him and to reveal Him to others so that they too might live. And as we do it, may we have the courage and faith of those who've gone before us to say, Lord, may it be done according to us, according to Your will, knowing that you can do the impossible. Amen. Okay, let's pray. Father, we bless you and we thank you. We give you glory. Lord, you are mighty, awesome, and wonderful. And we thank you, Lord, that you have revealed your word and your truth to us, Lord. Help us to believe, to believe that you can do the impossible, Lord, to dream along with you, to get a vision beyond what we think, and to say, Lord, what is your heart? What is your dream? What are your purposes that you're looking to to bring forth out of us, out of this community, out of your body as a whole? And may we partner with you, Lord, not as the bystander, but those whose hearts are on fire for you and who, led by your Spirit, go and do according to your plan and your purpose. Lord, we ask you to be our shield and our defender in this, to strengthen us to go before us, to be with us, and guard us in all the way. We thank you. We give you praise and glory in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.